Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with House Speaker Johnson refusing to move on the bipartisan bill of aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan that passed the Senate 70-29, to and speak with Thomas Kahn, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as Staff Director and Chief Counsel of the House Budget Committee. He is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University, and we will assess the chances of a workaround Johnson's civility to Trump to get a bipartisan majority vote on the floor via a discharge petition. Then, following yesterday's resounding election win for the Democrats in a rebuke of Trump and the Republicans' attempt to make the border the issue, we will speak with David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. His latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family, and is the co-founder of dcreport.org, where his latest article, which we will discuss, is Will GOP Leaders Speak Truth to Trump? Then finally, we look into whether the far-right Supreme Court majority are Republican political operatives in robes and will rule to delay the cases he is facing in federal court. Joining us is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton, He's been a national staff reporter for the Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for the New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. His latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856-1860, and we'll discuss his article at The Guardian, The U.S. Supreme Court May Turn This Election Into a Constitutional Crisis. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep background briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Thomas Kahn, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role in a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden Talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enhancement of the Affordable Care Act. And he's a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Kahn. Thank you, and It's always great to be back. Nice to hear your voice. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Thomas. And in terms of studying the Congress, have we ever had a more dysfunctional Congress? I mean, here you have the majority in the Senate having voted 70 to 29 on a bill to provide aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. And now it goes to the House, and uh, Mike Johnson said that he's just not going to move it, even though 
I'm told that there's over a hundred uh, House Republicans who privately would vote for the bill and and support aiding Ukraine. So the only way around this, I understand, is a discharge petition, and that's a long shot. So how do you see this situation? Well, first of all, I, I certainly agree 100% with you. Aid um, to Israel, Ukraine, and uh, Taiwan is of critical, critical national security importance, and the consequences of not passing that are really devastating. And and bearing in mind that the that the Republican, likely Republican nominee, um, essentially invited Russia to take over Europe, um, uh, just a shocking statement um, several days ago. Um, he obviously does not care about Ukraine at all. Um, in that context, um, uh, House Republicans essentially largely follow whatever Donald Trump tells them to do. Um, but you're absolutely right that there are a number of House Republicans that do support aid to Ukraine. Um, and a majority of the House, as you also correctly pointed out, would vote for the bill if it's on the floor. But Mike Johnson, the Speaker, has said he will not let it go on the floor. And traditionally, the majority controls what goes on the floor. But there is this procedure that, that you mentioned, Ian, called discharge petition. Um, it is very rarely effective. In fact, in the last 30 years, there are only two times, notably, that they've been used. One was on uh, Export-Import Bank, and another was on campaign finance reform. What is required for a discharge petition, and the reason it's so unusual, is that with a discharge petition, essentially the minority rather than the majority controls the floor, and the bill could go to the floor despite the Speaker's opposition. What it needs is to succeed is 218 signatures on the petition. Now, that means that you would need probably, right now there are 213 signatures. You would probably need up to 10 Republicans to sign the petition because there are going to be some Democrats who probably will not sign it because of their opposition to aid to Israel. Although the overwhelming majority of Democrats do support aid to Israel, there are a number of people in the squad who, who, who are opposed to it. So the key is to get up to 10 House Republicans. The dilemma is this. For a House Republican to sign a discharge petition is seen as a gross act of disloyalty to their leadership. Because essentially what it's telling their leadership is, I am defying you. I want Hakeem Jeffries and the Democrats to control the floor. At least that's how the leadership will see it. On the other hand, they have these House Republicans have a response, a national responsibility to do the right thing. And if this aid to Ukraine does not pass, the, the consequences are devastating for Ukraine in terms of their uh, war with Russia. So this is the real dilemma that we face. Will there be up to 10 House Republicans who have the courage and the commitment to doing the right thing to defy their leadership and sign the petition? But the process, though, discharge petition, takes 30 days, legislative days. It's got to go through committees, right, before it can even yeah. be submitted yeah. with its yeah. with the 218 signatures. Yes, you are right, Ian. Um, to, it does take 30 days. But here's the good news. 
The good news is that House Democrats filed a discharge petition many months ago. A general, and I don't want to get into the real weeds of it, but a, a shell discharge petition. They filed it when the debt ceiling increase was being debated before that passed. And that can be used as a vehicle. Because that shell, instead of the 30 days, only seven days are necessary. So once the discharge petition gets 218 signatures, which, as I said, would probably require up to 10 House Republicans and almost every Democrat to sign it, then it will take seven days to what's called to ripen. Once those seven legislative days pass, then um, a member, any member who signed the discharge petition can demand a floor vote, and the speaker has got to put it on the floor within two days. So the challenge is, and, and there are you know, a number of procedural ways that the majority could try to stymie this discharge petition, but if 218 people sign the discharge petition, then, then those, presumably those, those procedures would not block the voting of a Ukraine aid bill. So it is an arduous process, and as I said, it is almost extraordinarily rarely used uh, successfully, um, but it is definitely an opportunity. And uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who is the House Democratic leader, has said publicly that all options are on the table. And furthermore, a number of House Democrats have engaged in private discussions with a number of House moderate Republicans. One last thing. Um, in addition to aid Ukraine to Ukraine, as you know, and your listeners know, there is a significant amount of aid to Israel. And the question is, these House moderate Republicans who say that they are they pro-Israel, will they have the courage to actually not just say it, but prove it by signing a discharge petition? But everything that Mark Johnson is saying doesn't, and, and, and Steve Scalise, who I saw him interviewed uh, last night, just gaslighting and lying unbelievably. It's as if the Senate bill that Trump scuttled, uh, even though they eventually found a way to separate the immigration bill and pass the money for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. They keep saying that we can't go ahead, give money to Ukraine because we need security at our own border. That's what Johnson's mm -hmm. saying. Yet they just turned down a deal on the border, which is about the best deal that they would ever get, yes. and a deal yes. that actually would have cost Biden support from his left wing, particularly yes. um, with people that are concerned about asylum, etc. So nothing that they say makes any sense. And, they, and Steve Scalise was saying last night, oh, you know, we really want to get back to work and work for the American people. Well, the first thing you just did was impeach Mayorkas, for God's sake. Is that working for the American people? It's a complete waste of time. So it's obvious what's happening here, Thomas, is that Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, for whatever reason, I don't know why, she's, she's dead against any aid to Ukraine. Uh, she's already said that she'd bring up a motion to oust uh, Speaker Johnson from the Speakership if he puts up the package to aid Ukraine on the floor. So right. if that's the situation, right? So could it be then a discharge petition would get Mike Johnson off the hook? Because he's paralyzed. He can't do anything because of Marjor Marjorie Taylor Greene. But on the other hand, right. could he silently signal to the others, go ahead? 
he, he, that certainly could happen. Um, but if he were to silently go along with the discharge petition, obviously it would make him look extraordinarily weak um, in the eyes of his own conference because he would essentially have allowed Democrats to take control. Um, on the other hand, to your point, he could make the argument, look, there's nothing I can do about it. I've done everything I can to oppose this bill. And there are 10 renegade House Democrats, uh, excuse me, 10 renegade House Republicans who are going to go along. You know, you know, Ian, one, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I get a little bit of political whiplash as I watch Republicans who have been demanding action on the border, demanding a bill, and then a bipartisan bill, and then G- Senator Jim Lankford, who's one of the most conservative Republicans in the Congress negotiates a deal, and then because Donald Trump announces he's opposed to it, um, then they are opposed to it. And by the way, they don't make any secret of the reason they're opposed to it. They're not opposed to it because of the substance, because as you quite correctly said, uh, this would really politically you know, be somewhat risky for, for Biden to support. They have said the only reason they're opposed to this voter package is because they want an issue to run on in 2024. So they are putting their own, politi- they say this publicly, their own political interest ahead of what's in the best interest of the country and even against what their own political views are. So it's really kind of a, a paradox here. And, and, and one question, one last point, Ian, I think the American people are watching this and they're shaking their hands and wringing, shaking their head, wringing their hands and I think they sent a powerful statement last night when in Long Island, a Democrat won in a district that Republicans had carried in 2022. And Tom Schwazi, um prevailed in the special election for the George Santos seat. And the border was the big issue. I think the American people see what, what the Republicans are doing and they're saying, we're fed up. We, 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 we're just fed up with what this majority is doing. Well... Given that it looks as if a discharge petition is the only way out, what's your bet then, Thomas, of whether or not they'll go ahead? Because do you see in any way a path for Johnson, even if he does the right thing? And I don't understand why he doesn't support aid, particularly being a Christian Zionist, why he doesn't support aid for Israel. But Ukraine, I mean, he did in 2018, the biggest donor to his campaign was Konstantin Nikolaev, a Russian oligarch close to Putin, who controlled and financed Maria Butina, the Russian spy. That's something uh, that's a little suspicious. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt, because he said many times that he wants to aid Ukraine, and he certainly wants to aid Israel. You don't see him folding in any way, and I take it the only way forward is a discharge petition. I think it's it's a great question, Ian, and I think the answer is that uh, Mike Johnson goes to sleep every night uh, with with the, the ghost of uh, John Boehner and Kevin McCarthy uh, in his mind. And he sees what happens to uh, Republican speakers when they defy the right wing. Both McCarthy and Boehner were, were thrown out because they defied the Freedom Caucus or the Tea Party. And I think Johnson recognizes if he were to allow Ukraine aid to go to the floor, if he went along with it, his speakership would be over very quickly. So I think he's trying to avoid that. Um, and the, the discharge petition, therefore, is, is a likely option. But one other thing that's kind of interesting is that Johnson has said that he supports aid to Ukraine. 
I did uh, notice um, that just a few minutes ago, there were some House moderate Republicans, uh, uh, one from Pennsylvania, who said they're going to write their own bill on aid to Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel, I guess with some border security provision in there. The problem with writing a new bill is even if the House passed it, it would have to go back to the Senate and go through the whole long, arduous, difficult um, process that, that the Senate just went through. So a new bill is just not feasible or practical. Well, Thomas Kahn, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. As always, I really enjoyed it. And uh, please let me know if you have any questions or anything else I can follow up on. Well, thank you, Thomas. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Kahn, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role in a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden Talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And he is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into yesterday's resounding election win for the Democrats in a rebuke of Trump and the Republicans' attempt to make the border an issue. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting the uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. His latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family, He's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, where his latest article is, Will GOP Leaders Speak Truth to Trump? Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnson. Well, glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And after the loss in the 3rd District last night, the Republicans should be having reckoning. And of course, yesterday, before they lost that seat, they had to rush through a second impeachment of Mayorkas, uh, which they just squeaked by with one vote. Now, of course, they've they one vote down because the Democrats have picked up a seat in the House. But it's always seemed clear to me that in spite of all the Democratic bed bedwetting over and fretting over Biden being too old, uh, the best thing that Biden has going for him is Donald Trump, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty clear. Any other Demo- Republican leader that was sane and they put a sentence together someone like Nikki Haley would probably be a more formidable candidate, surely. Yeah, Donald is uh, the gift that just keeps giving to people who haven't gullibly and foolishly uh, given up their critical thinking skills and joined the MAGA cult. And as Donald, who I've known now for almost 36 years, moves along in time, he's just getting worse and worse. His, his, uh, mental acuity, his ability to make clear arguments, and his appalling ignorance about almost everything uh, continues. Uh, 
so I, I agree that I think that Trump is proving himself to be utterly unfit. Well, of course, he's trying to claim that he's all on the ball and Joe Biden has dementia, which is absurd. Well, the most outrageous remark, of course, was on Saturday in a rally in South Carolina where he encouraged Putin, saying that uh, he would encourage Putin to do whatever the hell he likes with a NATO country that uh, didn't reach the funding targets, according to Trump. Now, most of the press coverage of that has sort of said, oh, well, you know, he's he's equating NATO with uh, the ownership of a country club where if you don't pay your dues, you can't use the spa or the tennis courts. But I find it much more sinister than that, David. I, I really think that this guy is owned by Putin and always has been. And I'm astounded that American investigative journalists have shied off this story ever since Bill Barr sidelined the Mueller report and treating it like old news when the evidence just piles up and up and up. And by the way, we know that Trump has told <laughs> Mike Johnson to scuttle the Ukraine deal, which is the best thing that Putin's got going. It's the only way he's going to win the war in Ukraine is for Trump to get elected. That's obvious. But, you know, Mike Johnson, for example, his biggest donor to his 2018 campaign was Konstantin Nikolaev, one of Putin's oligarchs, who was the handler and financier of Maria Butina, the Russian spy. I mean, it's unbelievable that people aren't following this stuff. Well, part, I mean, part of the problem is that in mainstream journalism, where I worked for a half a century, there are conventions and there is a lot of concern, with good reason, uh, that you don't want to get drawn into saying things you can't prove or to go beyond what you know. But in the case you just gave, we've got public records on this. So why is it not being covered? There's plenty of very smart, very aggressive reporters around. The problem is that if you things go on every day that you don't see the dots, and the job in some ways is to connect the dots. And who donated to Mike Johnson is an excellent example. But I can tell you from many years of working at the New York Times and the LA Times that if I went in and said exactly what you did, you might have an editor say, well, that's tendentious. I mean, how can you prove there's any connection there? Okay, so the one guy was a rich Russian, but how do you know that he's Putin's agent? And you can look at him and say, are you kidding me? Nobody gets rich in Russia unless Putin wants them to be rich. Nobody stays rich unless he wants them to be Well, I, I, don't, you know, I, I don't think we can establish that premise uh, independently. That's the way the thought process goes. And it's very unfortunate. And related to this is that Donald Trump's not understanding things is now sort of baked into who he is. I had Donald said another crazy thing indicating he's ignorant yesterday. It's not news. We've already told you that. Um, years ago, I said to the foreign editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer when I worked there, I I'm a little confused. Uh, can you guys possibly drop into your next story just a paragraph or two about the war in Bosnia Herzegovina, which I used to call Bosnia schizophrenia, um, to remind me of who the good guys and the bad guys are? And the editor looked at me and said, we have explained that. We don't are going to do it again and waste valuable space on it. And I said, well, they're going to lose readers who don't remember and don't deal with it as closely as you do because they need reminders. They need little refreshers. If I need a refresher, trust me, the average reader needs a refresher. And so there's also this, this arrogance of, you know, we did that. Uh, Bill Thomas, the 18 years he was editor of the LA Times, had a policy, write it long, write it well write it once. 
you know, if the advertising model operated on that, you would have seen an ad from Walmart 30 years ago and never again. Right, but you've done a lot of forensic reporting on tax dodges, and it shouldn't be very hard. First of all, you have to, and even I think editors of major newspapers surely know that Putin is using hybrid warfare and that he's weaponized money and that the oligarchs are merely cutouts for weaponizing money abroad uh, and uh, they do it, you know, they for what was it, nine million pounds that Putin invested through oligarchs into Brexit? What a, what an incredible payoff that was to paralyze yeah, and, and the UK. That large, and, and that largely hasn't been in the British newspapers either. Well, and, because of the another, libel laws, they, they insurance a guy that they funnel the money through, right. who, who was set up in a honey trap with a a Russian hooker who was booted out of the Emirates, Katja Padrina, Aaron Banks, uh, he'll sue the hell out of you if you say anything about it. Yeah, and and so, you know, one of the ways you get these stories out, and I will fault the Democrats here, is you use your congressional immunity to put these things in the record. And the Democrats haven't been doing that very effectively. Um, and and so, I mean, there's a real problem here. Don't don't I don't want the listeners to minimize uh, the problem that we have here, but uh, the po- reporters who cover politics, they are not policy reporters. They are paid and rewarded to cover the horse race. It's the wrong way to cover elections, but it's the way it's been done for, you know, well over 150 years. And I, I much as I and Jay Rosen and Jack Schaefer and a few other press critics uh, uh, scream and yell and write pieces about it. We haven't moved the the meter one inch. And in the current matter with Donald, Ian, uh, Donald demonstrated Saturday he doesn't understand what NATO is or how NATO works. Then he proceeded to essentially invite Vladimir Putin to invade more countries. And two days later, the Kremlin announces that the prime minister of Estonia, one of the countries most under threat, should be arrested because she has been tearing down Soviet-era statues in that country. I'm shocked. People freed from the boot of the Kremlin want to tear down, you know, the great Lenin and Stalin uh, uh, statuary. And that's a further indication that Putin plans to do what he has said consistently for more than 25 years, at least more than 20 years, he intends to do, which is to conquer the former Soviet bloc countries and bring them under Russia. And the coverage of this is just generally atrocious. And when you do read some really good stories, I mean, there have been a few in the New York Times that are just eye-opening. They are written in this bureaucratic style. So the people who read the New York Times, who, you know, there's a a joke in the newsrooms at at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times that uh, Times readers have the IQ points and Journal readers have the equity points, the, the money. Um, it, it just doesn't translate over. When you watch, uh, the, I, I look at the beginning of all three nightly news shows. I, I, I DVR them and I run through one and then look at the other two. And they just don't capture what's going on here because the conventions of journalism don't capture the kind of um, psychological uh, political uh, warfare through the internet that's being uh, 
pursued, but not just by Putin, by Xi in China, by Kim in North Korea, by the mullahs in in Iran, and and by the Israelis. Uh, it's just not not being covered the way that it should. But Donald is and the piece that I just wrote for DC Report about um, how. Reaganism has always had an element of racism to it. It wasn't in your face. Um, it was more subtle. But Reaganism's evil spawn is Trumpism, and it's right in your face about the racism in it. And I think the results from the election Tuesday in New York, where the Democrats got back the seat that was disgraced by George Santos, is pretty clear evidence that the public overall, you know, is, 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 is a majority of people anyway, are not interested in promoting racism, grievance, hatred, bigger, bigotry, and revenge. And that's what Trumpism is. It's bigotry, hatred, revenge. And it's going to lose. And yet nobody in the Republican Party seems to have the, the spine or the gravitas to say, Donald, you're going to ruin this for all of us. We're all going to we're going to lose lots of seats in the House and the Senate if you don't withdraw from the presidency. The way that um, two U.S. senators, Hugh Scott and Barry Goldwater, and the minority leader in the House, went to Richard Nixon almost 50 years ago, August of, of 1974, and said, "You have to resign. You're going to ruin it for everybody else if you don't resign." And Nixon, whatever horrible things we should all think about him had the fundamental decency and patriotism to realize the game was up and he resigned the very next day. Well, just to, to touch on the editors of the major newspapers and the editors of the major news broadcasts on the three networks, of course, we always think that Fox and MSNBC uh, and CNN, where people get their news, but they don't really, their numbers are nothing compared to the nightly news from ABC, CBS, and NBC. But still, any of those news outlets, all they have to do is get somebody on the staff that follows Russian and Chinese media, and they'd find out right away that Putin's propaganda outfit and Xi's propaganda outfit are encouraging secession in the United States. They're praising everything I, I, that Governor I, Abbott is doing down there on the border and the 25 Republican governors who are joining in him. And there's this thing called Texit, which we talked about Brexit earlier in this conversation. Texit, there's all over Texit, you know, secede, secede. In other words, the real reality yeah. is we, we, our national security people are, are often one of the reasons that they've been holding back arming the Ukrainians is, oh, we don't want Russia to fall apart. And, and the truth of the matter is we're going to fall apart. We're vulnerable. We're, and Trump is the instrument of division, he, and he's controlled by a, a malignant foreign power. Well, see, now that's where editors would go nuts when you say control. I, I would say he's, he's doing things that benefit them. I don't think you can show he's controlled by anybody. I don't think Donald is controlled by anybody, but his, the way he thinks and sees the world is exactly what Putin wants. And after all, Putin's fundamental goal is chaos. That's what helps him. He doesn't have any expectation uh, of directly controlling Donald, but he doesn't need that. He just needs to create chaos. And, you know, on the staff of the New York Times and at the L.A. Times, and I suspect, therefore, the Washington Post, uh, and I know at Bloomberg and AP, there are a number of very savvy journalists who read and write Russian, who read and write 
Chinese, Mandarin, or uh, Cantonese, mostly Mandarin. And so it's not that they don't have those skills. It, you know, back around 2004, when I was working on my book, Perfectly Legal, I wrote a piece, so gave it to my editors at the New York Times, where I had gotten uh, translations of a new article in China's primary military journal. You know, just like uh, American officers read uh, magazines that are produced for them that are full of theoretical writings about analysis of events past and future and expected current conflicts. And the chief military strategist of the People's Liberation Army laid out the argument for war between the U.S. and China being inevitable, the duty of the PLA being prepared to defeat America, and the fundamental long-term preparations that need to be taken. And the response I got to that from the editors who do foreign affairs at the New York Times was, you're the tax reporter. Stay in your lane. And furthermore, this guy's not important. He's very important. He continues to be important. Um, and they, they wouldn't run the piece. And that's, there's also like all bureaucratic organizations. doesn't matter if it's the L.A. Unified School District or uh, uh, General Motors or big newspapers, they are organizationally bureaucratic. And so there's turf protection and avoidance of risk-taking. I mean, the only people who take real serious risks in journalism are investigative reporters and investigative editors. And we're always sort of, you know, on the fringes of things, with the rare exception of John Carroll and Dean Becquet when they ran the LA Times and Gene Roberts when he was the managing editor of the New York Times and before that editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer. Most editors, you know, they're not like that. They're Shelby Coffee when he replaced Bill Thomas as editor of the LA Times, he was a features guy. He had run the style section of the Washington Post, and his version of the LA Times reflected those values. So there's a real serious problem here, no question, of needing to just look at the stories that are right in front of your eyes. You don't have to dig. You just have to connect the dots. And we're not right. doing a good job of that. Right. But just in closing, David, surely somebody's got to talk to the media owners that you can't normalize Trump. He's not normal. This is not a Tweedledum Tweedledee race anymore. You know, this this is well, a owners don't run newsrooms. Owners do not run. News. I know that people think it's the corporate ownership. That's not how it works. If the publisher of The New York Times came in to the newsroom and said, you're going to do this story this way. When I was working there, I assure you, I'm just a reporter. I would have gotten everybody to walk out and be on the street corner in an hour. It's just not how it works. Uh, every day at the news conference at the New York Times, there's two set parts of it. The first part, the editors who make up the front page meet with the editors of the, all the sections, you know, business, uh, metro, national, foreign, et cetera. And those editors pitch to the front page editors what they would like to get on the front page. The publisher sometimes comes to that meeting, but then the, the section editors are dismissed and the publisher never stays to that meeting. There's only two times the publisher ever stayed. Once it was to deliver a message he had just gotten from the White House for them to take into consideration. And the other time was to tell them about some sort of personal thing that had nothing to do with the news. The point is the publisher, the owner, effectively in this case, because he's a Salzburger, never interferes in the production of the paper they just have a heads up about what's going to be in the paper. And the people who are critics of the press have got to get off this. It's the owners. It's not. It's right. the 
leaders well, who, in but the who, newsroom. Who, David, is going to deliver the message that you can't continue this binary on the one hand, the other on the other hand, in this 2024 election, because Trump is not normal, and you're treating it like he's normal and Biden's normal, and it's just another election and another horse race. It's not. Nine this years guy into is my time, crazy. exactly what you're saying. I have no hope for that occurring, Ian. Just none. I mean, it's been nine years, and 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 I wrote recently that the editors of the New York Times haven't learned anything from the 2016 election where you'll recall the publisher and the then executive editor gave an extraordinary front page apologia to the public for their awful coverage of the election. They wouldn't listen to me. They wouldn't write about, you know, Donald uh, uh, going after rich children so they would gamble in his casinos. Twelve-year-old child who had money to gamble and got liquor and limousines and, and sweets and and his being involved with one of the biggest cocaine traffickers in America up to his eyeballs, none of which was ever reported, they haven't learned a damn thing. So we just need to go around them on this issue. Recognize there's lots of things that are well covered in the news media, but this is an issue where they just don't get it. Well, uh, David K. Johnson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with David K. Johnson, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting the uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code. And he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. His latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. He's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, where his latest article is Will GOP leaders speak truth to Trump. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into whether the far-right Supreme Court majority are Republican political activists in robes and will rule to help Trump delay the cases he is facing in federal court. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sidney Blumenthal, a former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. His latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at The Guardian, the U.S. Supreme Court may turn this election into a constitutional crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sidney Blumenthal. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And Trump's latest filing to the Supreme Court is a flagrant effort to delay the decision on his immunity. And I guess anybody who watched the or heard the oral arguments on the Colorado case had to conclude, surely, that Leonard Leo's ultra-right-wing majority on the court, it, it was a case about insurrection, but 
they didn't want to talk about insurrection. <laughs> Any time it was brought up, particularly, I, I recall, Gorsuch just shot it down right away. So that's my greatest fear, Sydney, is that the the Supreme Court's right-wing majority have bought into the new Republican orthodoxy that's created by Trump. That is that January 6th was no big deal. We don't talk about insurrection. It was a nice walk in the park. If anything went wrong, it was Antifa or maybe it was Nancy Pelosi's fault. So that's my concern. I don't know whether you share it or not, but have the right-wingers on the Supreme Court essentially bought into Trump's narrative about insurrection and therefore they will dismiss the Colorado case? Well, I wrote in The Guardian uh, in this article about this. Uh, and I ask readers to imagine what it would be like a year from now if these events that we've just experienced play out, including the Supreme Court hearing on the Colorado case of Trump v. Anderson. Uh, it was clear from the hearing that virtually all the justices had concurred that they want to kick the case. Uh, they don't want to handle it. They're desperate to uh, you know, get rid of it. Uh, they're looking for any exit. And Chief Justice Roberts um, raised the absolutely absurd proposition that, uh, what, that the, a reason to get rid of it is not to define insurrection, which is the heart of the Colorado case under Amendment, 4, Amendment 14, Section 3, which disqualifies anyone who has taken an oath of loyalty to the United States and has broken it by engaging in, in insurrection like Trump has. And Robert says... Well, uh, what if someone charges Biden? We would have chaos and all these states could then try and eliminate Biden from the ballot. Of course, this is completely ridiculous, particularly as a basis for uh, ruling on the case. Uh, among other things, it shows Robert's implicit contempt for state courts, which would certainly handle this in uh, dispatch the absurdity in quick order. Uh, so uh, imagine there is a brief that was filed before the court, an amicus brief led by Benjamin Ginsburg, who was the chief attorney for the Republican Party for many years on election law. And there are two other legal scholars on it, very uh, respected. And uh, Rick Hazen of UCLA is one of them. And uh, Professor Porter at uh, Ohio State is another. And they say, if the court doesn't do this, they're risking cat a catastrophic uh, result, which would be that if a state can't disqualify a candidate, then it's left to the Congress. So I imagine a scenario where the Democrats capture the House. And if Trump is still on the ballot, regardless of the outcome of the election, but let's say he wins, the House could simply disqualify him. And uh, that would begin a series of wild events that we can only imagine that would certainly involve undoubtedly a lot of violence. But just on terms of whether or not the right-wing majority handpicked by Leonard Leo on this Supreme Court are 
Republican political operatives in robes. When you brought up what Chief Justice Roberts said in that ridiculous comparison with Biden, comparing him to Trump, isn't that at the heart of what's going on in this campaign and what the problem we have, and particularly with the press, is normalizing and equating the two? You've got one guy who's demonstrably insane and the other guy who's done an amazingly good job uh, and continues to do so. So is Roberts normalizing Trump by making this absurd comparison with uh, Biden? Well, let me take several of these points in order. One, Roberts himself is not just normalizing this. He's he's creating the condition for enabling Trump. And it's not simply him, and it's not simply the conservative majority on the court. It's also at least two of the liberals who appeared completely historically illiterate and eager to get rid of the case um, and to rule that Trump uh, should be qualified for the ballot. And, and those are Laney Kagan and Katanji, excuse me, Jackson. And they were as eager as uh, the conservatives to knock down the case. Paying attention to the media is a fool's errand. Um, They engage in uh, false equivalence um, and uh, constantly and uh, fail and abdicate their responsibilities. As a matter of course, uh, many of them in the mainstream press have equated Biden's age with Trump's statement on NATO against the Western alliance, that he would encourage Russia to attack one of our allies and that we would not, under the treaty for which we're obligated, uh, respond. Um, Rather than reinvestigating Trump's ties to Russia, uh, they have instead equated them to the statement of the special counsel, Robert Hur, who is a hardwired right-wing cadre as somebody who is elderly and forgetful, a totally gratuitous um, insertion into his report in which he completely exonerates uh, Biden on uh, holding government documents. Sure. But Mary Garland let that damn report go out, uh, Sydney. I don't understand that. Mary Garland's in charge. It's under his name. And he didn't redact it. He didn't do anything. It didn't do, certainly didn't do what Bill Barr did, which is completely sidetrack uh, the Mueller report. Well, um, uh, Bill Barr in, um, um, lied about the Mueller report, about um, Trump's connections to Russia, in which, by the way, Um, Trump in giving an interview to um, Robert Mueller, the former FBI director in charge of the investigation into the uh, uh, Russian uh, interference in the U.S. election election of 2016 to assist Trump. Trump engaged in what Mueller documented as 10 obstructions of justice. Nobody has picked them up post-presidency. Garland um, wasted a year and a half on January 6th investigating the small fry as though this were a mere riot and not an insurrection. And it was only after the January 6th Committee of the Congress 
that uh, he appointed Jack Smith as a special counsel to look into the insurrection and all of its attendant aspects, as well as Trump's secretion and hiding of of national security and other government documents and obstructing the government to um, retrieve them from his Mar-a-Lago estate. Also, this contrasts with Biden's behavior, completely cooperative, turning over all the documents, um, and even um, on October 8th and 9th, right after the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack on Israel, Biden gave five hours to the special counsel to cooperate and testify. So um, uh, this right-wing counsel then um, inserts this gratuitous comment to smear Biden, it just happens to align with the main Republican talking point for their negative campaign against him. Um, Coincidence or not? So, um, you know, uh, all of these things could converge in this year in the election uh, to create a, a catastrophic chaos. So let's take two of the other trials. We talked about Colorado. You mentioned uh, Eileen Cannon in Florida, and what that case, by the way, is a slam dunk for Jack Smith if he only gets into court. But she's delaying, and now she has uh, she's about to release all of the details on the witnesses, including one who's turned state's evidence against Trump. These people will be doxxed. They'll be attacked. That We know that what's, what Trump's people do, and he sicks them onto them. So now I think Jack Smith's going to have to go to the 11th Circuit and take her off the case, which will delay it, but it sounds like it's going to be necessary. And on the, the January 6th case, given the partisan nature of this Federalist Supreme Court handpicked by Leonard Leo, I'm not sure that they're not going to go along with, uh, with Trump's strategy of just delaying it and delaying it until after, which is clearly what he's trying to do. Um, well, it's, it's bad enough that it's clear that they will uh, throw out the Colorado case that disqualifies Trump on the 14th Amendment, Section 3. They have before them the immunity case. If they rule that the president is always above the law, then they have created a kingship. And that is totally contrary to the Constitution. They will have eviscerated the heart of the Constitution and created a situation where one man uh, rules above the law and can commit any crime whatsoever. The hypothetical before the three-judge panel in the uh, federal appellate court was um, asked by one of the judges whether or not uh, a president was immune if he sent, say, seal uh, uh, team six to assassinate a political opponent. And the answer given by Trump's attorney was, well, yes. So anything goes then. Uh, and I'd be more than shocked if the Supreme Court, including the most of the justices uh, who are conservative, uh, voted um, that Trump was immune. But Trump's strategy is entirely a delay strategy as much as he can to drag everything out. And he has one judge on side, uh, Judge Cannon in the Mar-a-Lago case, who uh, irresponsibly has 
provided uh, uh, witnesses to the Trump camp, um, knowing with past experience that uh, witnesses have been subject to intimidation by Trump and that um, uh, witnesses in many trials, as well as judges and um, courtroom staffs, have been subjected to threats, um, as well as um, people who simply criticize Trump. Let me just add that Senator Mitt Romney, a former Republican presidential candidate, former governor of Massachusetts, spends more than $2,000 a day in personal security because of threats to him that come from um, essentially the right wing. So this is the atmosphere that uh, Trump has created, and it seems as if there'll be violence in this election because Trump, you know, encourages violence. If Trump wins, there'll be violence because he will invoke the Insurrection Act and create concentration camps, and there'll be demonstrations against it, which uh, the military would then crack down on, or even vigilantes. And if he loses in 2024, he'll claim he won like he did in 2020, and there'll be violence uh, meted out as well. So do you see any alternative to the what I see as the inevitability of violence in 2024? Well, I think that we'll see what happens, but the conclusive answer that you raise is a decisive victory for President Biden. And that is the conclusive answer to... Right, but the Democrats have got to stop bedwetting and fretting over his age and get behind him because there's no comparison between him and this other dangerous, crazy guy who was in Putin's pocket. Well... One of the other things I point out in this column in The Guardian is that, uh, is that the problem is not cognitive, cognitive function. It, the problem is cognitive dissonance. The fact that uh, people cannot um, uh, understand the relationship between cause and effect, between what Biden has done and um, uh, what he, the problems that he solved and um, their beneficial effects. Uh, of what he's accomplished. So you have a cognitive dissonance here. The problem is not Biden's cognitive function. Uh, I know a lot of people who have um, spoken with him very recently, uh, and he's fine. He's sharp. He's on top of it. He's running the government. He's handling many grave crises at the same time. Um, you know, he stumbles sometimes in public, um, and sometimes uh, mixes words up. But I have to tell you, I have known Joe Biden for almost 40 years, uh, back when I was a reporter for the Washington Post. And um, what we're dealing with here is Joe Biden, uh, not necessarily an aggravated age problem. Um, but he's uh, much more experienced um, and uh, He's on top of it. Um, I can't say the same for what I see about uh, Donald Trump, who uh, is, um, according to any psychiatrist you might casually meet, described as a malignant narcissist, um, who is uh, somebody determined to wreck the entire constitutional order in order now to escape a judgment 
for his numerous crimes. Well, Cindy Blumenthal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Sidney Blumenthal, a former assistant senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He's been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. His latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856-1860. to And he has an article at The Guardian, The U.S. Supreme Court May Turn This Election Into a Constitutional Crisis. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.